to the Double Loop Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints while you're working on your comparisons. We'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. All right, Glenn, here's the question for the week. They're... Back. No, they're great to contribute through Patreon.com. That's all of our supporters that have become patrons access all the uh the new content we have a new video just went up uh for us where you and i work through a challenging comparison a couple challenging comparisons over the next couple weeks so hope new patrons new patrons will go to patreon.com slash double loop podcast and check that out all right what do you got for me it was supposed to be there here isn't it from poltergeist i was actually going for for frosted flakes sorry i Wow, that's that's what I was I was I was going with the there like I was trying trying to do the they're great right 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 oh yeah right where Poltergeist was more of the there here here but then but then in the sequel they do the they're back they're back right yeah okay the sequels kind of went downhill no doubt. That's what happens when you don't have Steven Spielberg attached to it. Or Toby Hooper. Or Toby Hooper. Wow, good call. All right, uh, enough enough on that. I've got one for you. Yes, yes. It's a beautiful day in... The neighborhood. Close. And you did a, um, the Mandela effect, but we'll come back to that. No, I meant it's a beautiful day when we get new Patreon subscribers, and we appreciate that. Yeah, there is a Mandela effect on uh, it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood, which is what most people remember it to day be. Beautiful day in the neighborhood. Does no. You know? No? You have no? To, I challenge you to go and listen to the lyrics okay. sometime. It's a beautiful day in this neighborhood. Oh, but okay. if you if you ask most people, they will remember it as in the neighborhood, and they will swear to you that it's in right, right, the right. neighborhood. But it's it's in this neighborhood. I wouldn't quite put it in the Mandela effect, just to just to you know be pedantic here, but more in the like uh, you know Luke, I am your father, right? But that's um, a man, that is a Mandela effect. Well, it's it's but part of it is when you quote a line. The real quote doesn't always fit into the conversation, but if you say, Luke, I am your father, then, okay, that fits into the conversation. You know what the reference is, but if you use the actual quote, which I believe is, no, I am your father. That's correct. It doesn't really fit in, like, you, you, it's hard to, like, make that fit in the in the, uh, in the the conversation. It sounds a little out of place, so people start to, you know, change a little bit to make it fit, and then you end up hearing the quote more than you've seen the movie. Uh-huh. And, yeah. I see. Uh, well, I will I will write all of these people on the internet right now and tell them that this is not the Mandela effect. <laughs> so says Eric. It's just another th- th- theory I've, I've read uh, on the internet uh, when it comes to movie quotes and, and all those... Um, what is there's there's so many uh of examples of that um play it again sam you know never uttered in the in casablanca or all these other things where it's uh it's in the zeitgeist but never happened right right it's it's because it has to change slightly to become a quote anyway okay it's enough of Glenn and Eric at the movies. Um, we have every every couple months we, we do a little mini Glenn and Eric at the movies uh, <laughs> where we get off track. Well, um, want to mention a couple things uh, to to all the listeners first uh, to you know, wrap up our little discussion here about Patreon. Uh, a big thanks to Thomas. He was previously a, a patron, subscribed on patreon.com, but he upped his pledge every month and uh, wanted to just give a big thank you for doing that. Hey, thanks, Thomas. And, uh, you know, because we really appreciate it, you know, just for all the listeners out there, this is, you know, me and Glenn for the past five and a half years, just setting aside time, talking over the phone into our little microphones and uh, then editing it all together and uploading it uh, for you guys to listen to. Uh, you know, we've recently got more into the advertising realm, but we also are asking you guys to help support the show with whatever contribution you see fit to help keep us going and get better, get better equipment, get better uh, to continue on with the hosting of everything and to provide additional content. So thank you to Thomas and everybody else who is a Patreon subscriber and everybody else out there who is uh, considering signing up for, you know, just a dollar or so. Uh, thank you so much for that. 
The next thing to mention is uh, Glenn and I, we, we're a little now, we're like YouTube superstars now, kind of, <laughs> sort of, well, not really, but uh, we had a, a fun little adventure yesterday uh, on on YouTube. Glenn, give, give them a little rundown of, of uh, what we uh, participated in. So we were asked, invited on a YouTube channel, someone who does live streaming, and Eric, I think you can probably get the, the whole correct spelling or correct me if, if I'm wrong here, but it's perplexed QT and that's P-U-R-P-L-E-X-E-D, perplexed Q, capital Q-T, perplexed QT, correct? So yes, and if you just type that into your Google, uh, then that should bring up her YouTube channel, if not also Facebook and other things that she's on. And uh, that's all hosted by uh, Laura Keck. I believe that's K-E-C-K. And uh, she's done a lot of videos over the past, oh, two, three years, uh, focusing on a lot of true crime kind of stuff. But a lot of her, uh, her focus on her channel is on the Making a Murderer case. And that's why she asked us on to, uh, to be interviewed. Yeah, she came across our podcast and listened to all four episodes several times, took lots of notes, and had lots of questions. Now, she adamantly believes that Stephen Avery is innocent and essentially has concerns with all of the evidence in the case. But we, we answered her questions and went through it. And what, what we came away, you know, for sure, was she was very polite, very respectful. We had a nice, healthy debate. It was interesting talking to, again, a non-scientist, but she had sort of a scientific view on some things and she yeah. was certainly more informed than the average person on on things like DNA and fingerprints but had lots of great layperson questions too and was surprised at some of our answers that again we always see this with jurors and lay people they they don't know the science or what is normal in forensic science their experience is only through TVs and movies which you know sometimes make the uncommon seem common or the impossible <laughs> seem likely and they don't necessarily give the viewer a reasonable expectation of how forensic science and how these things work. And so Eric and I tapped into a lot of our experience. Uh, I, I referred a lot to my crime scene and bloodstain pattern background and, you know, obviously our experience as fingerprint examiners to, to really help answer her questions. I don't think we necessarily convinced her uh, that, you know, our, our, our view, but it was a really good, healthy debate. We appreciated the questions. There were lots of people watching at the same time and asking questions while we were, um, and they're going by so fast because uh, she had, she has a lot of people following her. I mean, there were a lot of people watching and there were just so many questions that we couldn't get to most of them. We, we we tried to to catch them as they went by on the live chat. Um, that's that's what the kids call it uh, when the, those those uh, those questions go by like that. Uh, Glenn. Oh, thank you. <laughs> uh, okay. You're welcome. Um, but uh, yeah, it was it was a great experience, and and she uh, she invited us on again to uh, maybe as a follow up at some point down the line. Uh, so we'll we'll uh, see if we you know find out when that's scheduled and heck maybe you know even plug it here on our podcast ahead of time so anyone out there that wants to you know watch it uh, live as opposed to the severely edited Eric and Glenn here on this podcast you, you wouldn't believe how many you know how many bleeps I have to take out of Glenn's you know diatribe sometimes but oh yes no. they would yeah. yes they yes they would <laughs> anyone who knows me but I, I have to give you credit too because you had some great analogies and I, I would recommend it to some folks to take a you know listen to or watch because again it's it's how we explain forensic science to lay people as opposed right. to most of our listeners which are probably practicing forensic scientists and fingerprint examiners and and, and how they think about things too the things that we had to go and explain to i always find this fascinating i always learn something about talking to lay people i bank because i know that when i'm speaking to jurors that will be useful information that hey i bet someone actually could be thinking that let me address that real quickly and for anyone interested in seeing uh, that conversation even though it was live it was also recorded and is now up on YouTube. So if you go to her channel, the Perplexed QT uh, channel, uh, you can 
rewatch the, I guess, the rerun. I guess, is that what yeah, <laughs> the equivalent be where it reruns on YouTube? Syndication. Where you can, where you can watch it to, uh, and see how the conversation went. So definitely encourage people to, to go over to that Perplexed QT channel and, uh, and see how we did. And, and uh, any comments from our listeners, you, know, you can send that in to us and, and uh, we'd appreciate that as well. Yeah, and I believe she's currently in an IT position, but didn't she you, – you talked to her a little more uh, previously, but didn't she have some journalism background or something? I believe so. That's that's what I remember uh, reading in her initial email is that she had that a little bit of that uh, in in her past at some point. But that would be a good question if we get back onto to her show uh, just to learn a little bit more about uh, her background and, and, and where she came from. It's kind of hard when you're the guest – you know, she's asking you the questions. You're, you know, we're telling her our background for her listeners, but uh, yeah, we didn't quite get all of uh, all of her background uh, from that discussion. But hey, and one one last thing on making a murderer too, since it, uh, Laura from that channel just sent us a message today. I guess Kathleen Zellner issued a new challenge in the Stephen Avery case, and and quite put quite simply. Because there were bones that were found off the Avery site in a near in a nearby gravel pit, there were some right. bones that had not been identified. It was possible that they were human, but they didn't go through the they they, they weren't identified as Teresa's, and I I don't think they did a, like examinations on them, like full full exams. Is that your understanding? I've I've heard so much about the remains and the bones from different sites. That uh, I I wouldn't re- want to say either way. Sure. I, okay. I, I don't remember exactly all the details, but I know there's multiple sites, some on the property, some off the property, some near the property. And right. All right. So these are bones from a gravel pit nearby. And if you've watched Making a Murderer 2, there, there's quite a bit of discussion about remains found on a nearby property. We'll simply say that these had not been fully tested, as our understanding, at least that's what Kathleen says in her motion, and that they wanted the opportunity to test them and confirm if they were Teresa's or not. The idea being if they were Teresa's, then she, you know, at least had her remains in another pit, not on the Avery site, and it supports their theory that she was burned in one location, and then the the bones were moved to the Avery Avery land and placed in you know planted on Avery's property, and that that's their theory. But they can't test them to confirm if they are Teresa's or not because the state gave these bones back to the Hallback family and and gave the remains back, including these bones, which is interesting okay. because. If I mean, if they didn't test them to be hers or not, they if they don't know if they're hers, so they end up giving them back to to the family. Kathleen maintains we don't know what they did with them. They either cremated these remains or buried these remains, and either way, they destroyed them so that we can't access them and test them. Therefore, and then she goes into a big legal argument that they essentially destroyed possibly exculpating evidence that that they would. Uh, want to test and would not be able to now because the state destroyed them without notice to the defense attorney. So it's an, another interesting mm. legal turn. And, right. and uh, you know, they are arguing that it's sort of central to their theory that, you know, she was not burned on this property but killed elsewhere. I what You know, who knows what a judge will end up doing. That, that was just – that motion was just filed today, but they're asking that to be addressed and potentially the case dismissed. Or, you know, the, um, right, the, sen- the, the, sen- the sentence vacated. Vacated, right. So we'll see where that goes. You know, the first impressions is there's so much we don't know about what happened to, to her body after she arrived uh, at that site. That even no matter which way the test goes, I wouldn't, say, wouldn't for, you know, personally uh, consider that strong evidence either way that uh, Avery did or didn't do it if things were moved around. He could have been involved in moving them around just because, you know, these other bones are found doesn't really mean anything. But, uh, you know, who knows? It it would definitely go against, again, the prosecution's theory. But the prosecution's theory could be of how it all happened could be slightly wrong with him still being guilty. And that was a, a big part of the discussion that we had yesterday with uh, with Laura. 
right. uh, on her interview. All right. So the next thing I want to mention is an email or a series of emails that we got in from a listener, fingerprint examiner, that had uh, some questions about ANAB requirements for accreditation. And specifically, this gets to, and if you guys remember, a little over a year ago, we did a couple, a few episodes on accreditation. So let's cast our minds back to to that with the, this little phrase. AR 3125 7.8.1.2.2B. <laughs> uh, it, it, it just brings it all back, you know, just the, the, the series of, of numbers and letters. Anyway, uh, the question was about, you know, how, how are latent print labs, how are, are units, examiners dealing with this? And let me just do a little read off of, of what it says here. Um, so, uh, there shall be a procedure for reporting results that, and skip to B, requires qualifying the significance of associations in the report, whether by a statistic or a qualitative statement. Glenn, why don't you start us off with uh, how, how you initially responded to, uh, to the emails, just kind of asking in general, quality managers are looking at latent print units going, all right, guys, what are you doing with this? And uh, so, how are latent print units supposed to respond? Well, the, let's take the easy part of it. Obviously, if your agency is using a stats model, then you could attach a statistic behind that conclusion. That would be one laboratory, the Army Crime Lab, <laughs> maybe the Dutch. All right. So not too many agencies will qualify under that. But if, you, if your agency is moving that direction, well, that's one way to satisfy that. So assuming you're the 99.99% not using a statistical model, then you're left with what it basically says is some sort of qualifier about this, the strength of this conclusion or the strength of the association. If you have a footwear background or if you are, hand, you know, have a handwriting in that, uh, examination and so forth, then none of this is all that terribly surprising and you've been doing it in other disciplines. Uh, anyone who's done footwear examinations knows that when they give their conclusions, they have essentially various levels of strength of the association and describe what that association means, whether or not we're talking about class characteristics, some individual characteristics, sufficient individual characteristics to reach a positive identification, whatever that might be, you need to qualify and, and express and describe the strength of that association. And Eric, you know, I'm sure we'll get into this, the debate can also be where should you be describing that in the report or in your SOPs, definitions, glossary, et cetera, right. your, your controlled documents. And that's so a, a couple things quickly to point out. First off is it's not saying that you, you need to report the uh, significance of the association, whether by a statistic or a qualitative statement. It's saying you need to have a procedure for reporting. And that, that's a, it's important uh, differentiation. Your procedure could be that you, uh, you've described what identification and conclusive exclusion, if those are your only three results that you report, you have those all described uh, in your in your the report or in your procedures or in you know a glossary or somewhere like that, and that is your procedure of how you describe in a qualitative way the significance of those of those results. Uh, basically, taking even if it's just the old uh, Swigfast definition of identification, that that describes the significance of that association. Uh, another thought to throw into this is also in uh, the ANAB manual, the AR3125, uh, there are procedures that you can implement if agreed to by your customers where you only provide a, a limited report, uh, a shortened up report. So if your customers don't really care to get the full you know, three-page definition of all your conclusions with every report, you can have an agreement with them saying, we understand that this is what all this means. We only want you to say the word identification. We're good. We know where to find that definition for that. So that's another whole thing that comes into here uh, as well. 
Yeah. And and I, I'm going to throw some, some words at people and some examples if they want to jot some things down if they don't already have it. But, I mean, I, I like how footwear and some of the other disciplines descri- describe the relative strengths of their conclusions. And one thing that you, know, you might see in footwear, and I, I think exa- fingerprint examiners could be doing this if they're not already – is, you know, when you're giving a definition of identification, you know, the first thing you, you would state under it is, and make it very clear, this is the strongest level of association that we can report. And I, right. I've seen this in footwear, and I, and I really like this, so that you know if you don't already have the scale or you're not putting that in the report, it should be in your SOP somewhere, you should have the scale up, you know, your, your scale and the different conclusions and the relative magnitudes and relative to each other, but... An identification, your definition could be something along the lines of, this is the strongest level of association. When an identification is reported, it means that there are sufficient characteristics in correspondence with a high level of discrimination that we would not expect to see these characteristics repeated in another source. Stop. You know, something something along those lines where right. you've defined it. You're not saying it's to the exclusion of all others, but you are saying that there's a high degree of correspondence, high degree of discriminability. You wouldn't expect someone else to have these characteristics to that degree of correspondence or or even as far as like the Army Crime Lab, you know, wrote more of a likelihood ratio statement where the probability to observe these characteristics at this degree of of correspondence is extremely low and and that to me all of those statements would satisfy that requirement because you have defined the level of association that identification is but you'd have to do that for your other ones too well i i know uh that the uh, the state lab in arizona just completed their their first accreditation under anab they report out Basically, just the words identification, exclusion, inconclusive. I mean, it's it's in a sentence, but essentially, it's just those words. The definitions are in the uh, SOP, and that all, you know, went over just fine. And that's the experience I've heard from other labs as well. Uh, ANAB is not, at least at this point, <laughs> mandating anything like uh, Army Crime Lab language or a stat model to be included into the report because of of this 7.8.1.2.2b now uh, one of the, the other responses that you you sent uh, back in this um, email chain is something i've seen because i've seen some of your reports here recently glenn and i i'm i i like how you've combined a, the stat model language and the traditional identification language um, so i was wondering if you could read off your, you know, just the overview of how you phrase that now. Sure. I don't have it in front of me, so I'll do my best to read it out. No, I'll, I'll just, I'll read it off from, from what I remember from memory. Correct me if I'm wrong. Okay. Uh, but I remember starting this conversation with, and I and I, I mean this strongly, and I know you just said a few minutes ago that, you know, according to the requirement, they don't have to put this in the report especially if they have an agreement with the customer. I am a huge fan of putting these things in the report because I do feel that a a massive mistake that we make as forensic scientists, especially if we are allegedly neutral in all of this, working for the crime lab, is the idea that the police officer who submitted the evidence is essentially the client. I, I realize that by definition of accreditation that that is what we mean, but they are unfortunately not the not the end user, and the end user includes attorneys, judges, potentially jurors, and this is often sometimes forgotten, the defendant himself or herself, yes. who may want to read the report and the evidence laid against them. I, I don't know if I have I told this story before, Eric, that I sent out a report once and I and I got a, a message back a couple of days later from the defense attorney saying well, the client wanted to thank you for 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 that report. He thought it was very detailed and now under you know understands you know the evidence. And I went, well, that's weird. I I mean I identified him. I agreed with the local examiner. We right. made several IDs to him, and the defense attorney corrected me and said, no, no, no. He understands that, 
But now, after reading your report, he understands the weight of the evidence that the state has against him and the seriousness of this, how clear their case is, and how basically if he goes to trial, he's going to lose. And now he can make a better decision about his future and take this deal that's been offered to him. And I had never thought about evidence that way, that sometimes the end user is actually the person who's being charged with this crime. Never occurred to me. And it was... Yeah, that's that's a really good point. It, it really made me think differently about who is going to read these reports. So... I hate that that we get all caught up in the, well, we're going to keep it quick for the cop because the cop just cares if it's an identification or not. I, I totally get it. I did that for years, and I understand in the crime lab that's how it works. It's unfortunate because they're not the only end user. So I'm a huge proponent of putting as much detail as possible in the report, including definitions, a scale of conclusions, and so forth. But and that's why, again, what, what I wanted you to read this out is because I really do like how you've set this out and phrased this. My comment before about how ANAB isn't making anyone go to this level was more just notification to people out there of if uh, if this is some you know way that you want to move and have had language like this in your lab, that'd be great. But that is your choice, and not you. You you don't need to climb Mount Everest in the month coming up before the NAB audit. Consider this. They're not going to make you do it. If you want to do it, make sure you put it in with thought and uh, with preparation and not just because you think that someone's going to make you do it. All right. So now back to your question about how I'm reporting currently. So what what I do is I during my comparison, I mean, well, first of all, my reports are pretty detailed. So I break out my analysis, my comparison, my evaluation In my analysis. I do my gyro and make assessments about the value of the latent print. And then when I get to the comparison stage, I then see if there's correspondence to any of the exemplars I was presented with. I don't, in the com- in the comparison part of the report, say anything about identification or not, because that's a conclusion in the evaluation phase. What I do is I look at the corresponding features, see how many, how discriminating they are, how clear they are, and then I will make some assessment about the weight of the evidence for the competing propositions, the two propositions being that the first hypothesis, this person is the source of the latent print, and the second is that they are not the source of the latent print. And I do a, a qualitative verbal likelihood ratio, and I, I look at the weight of the evidence, and is this extremely strong support for same source? Is this strong support for same source? Is this moderate support for same source or weak support for same source? And then the same same scale on the other side for different sources, weak, moderate, strong, and extremely strong. And I'm borrowing from European language who's been doing this for a long time. This is you know, well-known stuff that's out there in the literature. And I report that, and I, and that that four that four level scale is in my is in my report, and it's clear that extremely strong support is the highest, weakest is the is the lowest, and so on. And then after I've declared my support, my the strength of that association, those corresponding features, the weight of the evidence, then I make a decision. And in, in that formal decision phase, I look at the weight of the evidence and potentially other things too. Was this an APHIS case? You know, uh, is there an adjacent latent print next to it that stands alone that I identified and it appears to be in simultaneity? I mean, there are a number of things I could consider, but I make a decision to report a conclusion. And at the moment, using identification, inconclusive with features in agreement, purely inconclusive, inconclusive with features in disagreement, but not enough to exclude, and then an exclusion, and then also incomplete, a nod to Alice parentheses Maceo White, who uses incomplete when she needs additional exemplars, as opposed to inconclusive, which I like that distinction. It's an incomplete exam. I need additional exemplars. And this then allows me to give a conclusion, which is associated with a qualitative weight of evidence, which is my extremely strong support or strong support. And just for the listeners, if this, if anybody still cares and is still listening at this point, <laughs> if, I, if it's an extremely strong support for same source, it's probably going to be an identification. If it's strong support for same source, 
it's likely going to be an identification, but and probably in the the complex B zone in the swig fast efficiency chart. But it might some strong associations, especially if there's a, several differences or issues I can't resolve, might end up being inconclusive. So strong support basically straddles the inconclusive into the identification categories. And then it's strong support can be all throughout the, um, you know, inconclusive with some features in the agreement. Moderate support is, is always going to be inconclusive. Weak support is always going to be inc inconclusive. And the, that's basically how that breaks down. So if you look at it, weak and moderate support are inconclusives of varying strengths. Strong support is still inconclusive, but could be a complex identification extremely strong support is going to be a non-complex identification. So that, that's how that breaks down. And then the third part, which I think you were hoping that I would discuss too, Eric, is that yeah, yeah. since now I've been, I've had access to Christoph Shampo's models, uh, statistical model in Switzerland, not in every case, but most cases, I'm running latent prints through the model getting a statistic and reporting that as well as additional support for my conclusion. I have not run yet into the situation where if I have one conclusion, the model has a drastically different value. I've not run into that yet because frankly, I'm still, I'm still learning about the model. And this is in, in terms of soft launch. Uh, I'm, I'm running it through. I'm using these data, but it's not necessarily driving the conclusion. I'm seeing at the moment if it supports the conclusion, but I'm still reporting that in the report. Haven't run into any issues yet. Attorneys haven't blinked at it. They've had a couple of questions, but no real issues yet. And I'm actually, Surprised I haven't had more questions from attorneys. One of the, the things I like what you're doing with the, with the number from that model is is you're really downplaying the specifics of the number. It's not like, you know, 2.378 yeah. times 10 to the 13th. You just put 10 to the yeah. 13th or approximately 10 to the 13th. You basically just drop off the any kind of specific number and just give basically an order of magnitude that's that's absolutely right especially with where the models are right now and their you know relative accuracy still being needing you know additional testing or further further testing i, I like how you you've downplayed basically any kind of argument over a specific number and just gotten it down to that uh that 10 to the something yeah and i'm also actually giving a, a not just one single number i'm actually giving sort of a range if you will because because i do gyro i'll first enter all the green points into the model first and then get a statistic and then i'll enter the green and the yellow points and then get a second statistic I could even get a third if I want to add it to red, but I tend not to use red that much. And orange, don't forget orange. Oh, that's that's true. I mean, orange, orange too can be included in that, and have had that happen. And that will that will give me multiple values of statistics, where probably the true statistic is somewhere between the high and the low value that comes up, and that's that's good. I mean, I I, I think people get so hung up on the exact numbers, is it? 125,000 or 127,000. I don't think these things really matter that much. Orders of magnitude are fine. And then seeing that there's some variability in a range of numbers, I think could be helpful. So it's just been my approach to it. I am still foraging around in the dark a little bit. And in fact, we <laughs> just starting some validation testing for the model, some internal validation testing for my company and getting a better sense of, of how this model works. Christoph and their team have already done their own validations of it, but I have to I have to do my own, if you will, internal validation. Right, right. But ultimately, want to write a paper, and then also in the paper tell other agencies, here's how you could validate a model like this. Oh, and by the way, here's here are the images if you want them that you could use to validate this model. So one final thought on this that I want to point out is is part B there in. 78122 requires qualifying the significance of the associations. Now, there is a, a um, this instinct to, to just latch on to either the 
what what do they call that now? The Christoph's model, the University of Lausanne model, the the new the Swiss model. What what's FR stat has a nice name to it. You can say it, right? I agree. I Christoph needs to work on this. I mean, I think even during his interview, I suggested we call it the pianos model or something. He quickly corrected and said, "No, no, 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 no it's no, no, no. it's not it's not a pianos model. Pianos is separate." And I'm like, "Well, yeah, but call it pianos, and it kind of gets tied in nicely." But he he needs to come up with a cool name. I agree. Or, or you know, even if it's just the Swiss model or the you know, I don't know. Uh, Lausanne 2018, L- L18, or I don't know. What, what, <laughs> is there something that's just a shorthand thing that we can use to talk about? Ooh, the, anyway. the K-Swiss model. Oh, okay. Uh, so wh- whatever that's called. Um, it is not labs and examiners should be careful not to just automatically assume that these models currently, all right now, meet a requirement for qualifying significance of associations there's been limited tests on them but that doesn't necessarily mean that they are ready to be put forward as a way to measure significance of association i would say the the swiss model is a little bit further along because it measures both halves of what we do when we uh, compare and examine identify while the, the fr stat only does half of it um, and referred back to older episodes to you know for the, those details, but just just not saying there's anything wrong with them, but don't just jump to that conclusion that these models automatically have already gotten to this point. Oh well, and let let's let's go a step further. Every agency will need to not only validate the model, but probably get additional training for reporting and testimony. So nobody should be (laughs) jumping the gun on this unless they are prepared to testify, report appropriately, and understand a little bit more about how these things work. And you can keep listening to the Double Loop Podcast for learning everything you want to know about these models over the next how many years are we going to keep doing this, Glenn? How many, you know, we've already been in five and a half. You think think we can make ten? Ooh, that's a challenge. And that's a challenge. All right. Speaking of which, how about uh, reading something off from one of our sponsors? That's a great idea. That'll keep us going. Absolutely. The big thanks to this week's sponsor, uh, Go Evidence Forensic Laboratories, is a full-service independent forensic lab that specializes in the development of latent fingerprint evidence. They serve law enforcement, private parties, corporations, private eyes, prosecutors, and defense cases. Go Evidence is committed to providing the highest standards of excellence with the most advanced technology available in the industry. Their experienced staff is ready to work with you on any criminal or civil investigation. And they're your direct source to vacuum metal deposition technology. They can process your cold case evidence with VMD. They provide sales, service, training. Brian and Scott are very passionate about this technology, and they always enjoy the chance to talk about the capabilities of, of this you know amazing system that most labs don't have the benefit of having in-house. Uh, they can offer tips on the systems, the consumables, maximizing the process, uh, standard turnaround times on most cases is only two weeks, and consultations are free. Uh, so if you want to join the many, many agencies that have uh, utilized their expertise, head over to GoEvidence.com. I've used them. They're great. And we had them on an episode as, as well. Do you, re- yep. do you remember what episode, Eric? I We mentioned it before. I don't have it offhand. Somewhere in the hundreds. But just, just do a just Google search. Double Loop Podcast, Brian Orr interview. There it is. Let Google do the work for you. Okay. <laughs> anyway, thanks again to Go Evidence for sponsoring this episode. All right, Glenn, let's move into the I guess, second half of the podcast of this episode. We're going to talk about an article. Big surprise. But it's a fairly short article, so uh, that's why we spent the first half talking about other miscellaneous stuff. We've, it's been a while since we've had a podge-podge episode. Uh, but this is an article, Journal of Forensic Science and Criminology. Uh, this is by uh, Adias Hefitz and Ben Shimon, and it's called Latent Fingerprints of Insufficient Value Can Be Used as an Investigative Lead. Right. And in fact, one of the, the key authors of this, or the, the first author, Atias, uh, I hope we're pronouncing his name right, 
Sorry. You may be familiar with one of his previous publications, which I'm a huge fan of, which goes back to 1995. And I think it was published in the Canadian Journal of Identification. And it was called the Israeli print. And it, oh. it was an article that was, in my in my view, really the first published close non-match coming from an APHIS system. And it had seven corresponding features. And their their thesis was basically, look, we're a small country here in Israel. You know, <laughs> right. We you know searched this latent print in an APHIS database, and we found seven corresponding features, seven matching features. And we know that many countries have an eight-point you know, eight soft standard. Maybe we should have a dialogue about how many features you can have matching from two different people and, and take a look at that. And unfortunately, the response in, in a couple of journals later from many regiologists and some fairly famous and well-known ones, we won't right. call names out right now, but you'd know the name if you names if you heard them, essentially said, this isn't even close, that if you call this close then you don't practice regiology and you really don't know what you're talking about. And, and I know for a fact that the Israeli print is actually on the wall at the Canadian Police College as a very good example of the use of level three detail so you don't make uh, an erroneous identification. So anyway, that, that, uh, so that, that's where I know this author from and he's published many different articles over the years. That, that is ringing some bells way back in training days. I remember reading something about it and looking at that print and and seeing those arguments about you know ridgeology and and uh, and all that. I, I'd love to see it again because I don't think I've seen that print uh, in like 10 plus years so ah. uh, yeah. Uh, I want to I want to look that one up here again. Yeah, John John and I use it in our exclusion class, so we got it. We're, we see it quite quite often. Right. You know what I'm going to do here? Let me just read off kind of the intro paragraph, kind of give it you an idea of what the this article is talking about. Like I said, it's a fairly short article, uh, but but this this will get you the uh, this, the the um, the gist of where it's going. Uh, so it starts with the background. In March of 2012, a group of young teenagers began a violent fight by using knives and guns. One of them was badly injured and the others escaped. Police arrived at the scene, collected evidence such as a knife, a cigarette box, and several beer bottles. By using uh, superglue fuming, they found three latent prints on the cigarette box. And uh, this case of attempted murder was placed on a fingerprint examiner's desk. Analysis led the examiner to evaluate two fingerprints as having value for identification and one as insufficient. From a list of 15 candidates displayed by APHIS, one person was notated as a potential source. However, only six or seven minutiae were found in agreement with no contradictions as presented in figure one. And they show a picture here in the paper of what that print looks like. And uh, probably put that up um, as the like cover photo for uh, this episode. So these fingerprints were shown to an expert for examination, but he also could not reach a conclusion. Two other experts independently were asked to look at the print, and after marking several minutiae, but not enough to positively identify the suspect, the three experts could not reach a conclusion. Uh, at this stage, they inquired what else what other information was out there about this suspect. It was discovered that a DNA profile from the scene matched the same suspect and also discovered his name was identified on a list of possible suspects provided by the investigation unit. So the question of the article is, given the contextual information in this case in the form of a combination of other evidence, what should the fingerprint experts do? Should they declare a hit? And uh, so the reason I read that all out because I think it encompasses all sorts of things that go into this. It's from an APHIS search. There's only six or seven points. All six or seven are underneath the right delta of a whirl, really close to the delta. There's other contextual biasing information, DNA profile, list of suspects, and then other little things in here of not being able to reach a conclusion. So uh, all of... So many things I want to talk about were kind of contained in that first paragraph. So uh, that's why I wanted to read that out and get that as the starting point from uh, for our discussion here. So, well, first off, Glenn, you see the picture uh, on the article. 
Yeah, I, I, I agree with, with their assessment that it, it would not have been appropriate to call an identification. Yeah, absolutely. There's It's limited features, limited area. What you can see is you know medium, medium, low quality. And, but it's just so generic being near a Delta that I totally agree. I, I don't think it's enough to call an ID. But one of the points that they say here is that they could not reach a conclusion. And that's one of the things I would jump in at first and say, okay, hold on here. Yep, I, I caught that too. I'm, I'm, I know what you're going to say and I'm with you. Go for it, man. Even if you just stick to the traditional three, you know, ID and conclusive exclusion, saying inconclusive, that is reaching a conclusion. Yep. Um, uh, I, I would definitely consider, I mean, I haven't spent as much time as obviously they did at the, you know, looking at originally, but I would definitely consider the support for common source yep. slash could not exclude slash inconclusive with similarities, whatever language, uh, you know, it, hopefully something settles out, which it looks like it's going to be support for common source for, or support for same source from, uh, from OSAC. But yeah, and this would have been moderate support in my in my scheme of things I just talked about right. previously. This would have been moderate at best, uh, at at best. And yeah, uh, absolutely. And then um, with that, possibly as the, the final conclusion being support for same source. And I think it's a, it's an important thing to note is that that is a conclusion. Just because you could not reach the identification conclusion doesn't mean you can't reach a conclusion. Right. And and that has value if you, especially if you say there was moderate support for for same source. This was inconclusive in that, you know, there were insufficient individual characteristics to make an identify or to affect an identification, but there were still corresponding features. That's that is a a valid conclusion and a useful conclusion. Absolutely. Uh, next thing here is is just the wording that they use, should they declare a quote hit? I think it's also important to distinguish between the APHIS system and how that works, limitations that you have in in using that system versus the conclusion that you report out to your customer. I think it would be appropriate to mark this as a hit in APHIS, meaning I don't need to, you know, I, I'm seeing even though it's moderate support, I'm going to report maybe just support for common source or same source, inconclusive. It's still the the hit term in APHIS uh, doesn't quite fit into uh, the you know the categories new or old that we have for reporting conclusions. So you so you would mean hit to be equal to identification, right? I mean that's what we're saying here. No, that that hit marking a hit in APHIS is different from identification. Um, it, it, okay. it, it can be, you know, depending on how your policies, your protocols are written, um, marking a hit in APHIS could just is maybe because your APHIS system doesn't have an option for inconclusive. You have to say yes or no. So you may just say, well, yes. And that may be because you, you may not want it continually searched uh, on the back end. I see. It, it's a, it's definitely something to think about before it comes up as an issue is when I say hit in APHIS or whatever the term is of your that your APHIS has, what does that mean in relation to the system versus what your conclusion that goes into your notes and report, what does that mean? Since the wording may not completely 100% overlap, there may be situations where you mark it as a hit or a no hit okay. to move it through the system as opposed to that being like the actual result that you're reporting. Right. Uh, just for an example, with our state system in Arizona right now, if you mark inconclusive, you have ident, non-ident, and inconclusive, if I'm remembering correctly. And if you pick inconclusive, it won't go away. It still sits there and waits for you to give either ident or non-ident. Uh, as a final answer. So I think we're in agreement. Something should be reported here. It's just now you're introducing a name into the report that wasn't there before. And we're not saying it's an identification. And I'm going to give a little shout out to San Diego. 
this would be San Diego County, who has a little bit of experience with this. They gave a presentation uh, maybe four or five years ago at the II, going, going back a few years, about reporting out these kinds of things from APHIS as potentially investigative leads and, and some of their concerns about how that would how that would play out. I'll bring up some more stuff a little bit later. But they, I think they did it in three or four cases that they talked about, and then they followed up sometime later to see you know, how the case panned out. At Minnesota, I had the opportunity, I was involved in a couple of cases where we did this, and the specific language that we used was something along the lines of, as a result of an APHIS search, a, a candidate was generated through APHIS that is a potential source of this latent print. This is not an identification, uh, and we explain why, you know, lacks blah, blah, blah. But there are, you know, some corresponding features such that this individual could not be excluded as the source. And then I, we, you know, we, we made it very clear this is not an identification, but uh, further investigation may be required. And that's, that's how we reported it out. It's definitely something to, to consider and have worked out. Um, you know, one of our first steps going forward following the article that Alice Maceo, now Alice White, wrote back in, in 2012, 2011, um, was on the use of, well, th their agency in, in Vegas Metro was uh, could not exclude when there was limited support. And... Uh, from what we when we took that and started adapting it in Arizona, it went in as a regular comparison, not as something generated from APHIS. And we didn't really consider that. Well, what if this had come from APHIS part of it mm -hmm. until a couple years later when that started? That actually happened then. Yeah. So definitely something to consider ahead of time, and it, it should be considered separately. There are different potential issues. If you have a limited support for same source, when it's the suspect that the officer supplied to you versus when it's the name that comes out of APHIS. Absolutely. Different situations, different math that goes behind it and uh, possibly different approaches on how to report it all. Yeah. And, you know, one of the, the major concerns we heard from even people in our unit was, well, this is really dangerous. We're now introducing a name, a person who wasn't there before and so on and so forth. And, you know, we worked through that a little bit. I understood that San Diego had the same issue. I'm assuming, you know, the Israelis here had some of the same issue as well. Yep. But ultimately, the it's how you communicate it and and how do you prepare for the, the change or how this is different. Meaning that if your communication is clear, this is not an identification. And we were very clear about that. But we also then, especially for the first, you know, first times that these happen, you call the officer up, you say, you're going to get this report. Here's what the report says. Here's what it means. Here's what it doesn't mean. They get it pretty quickly. And I, I believe that as long as they understand the difference and the change, uh, why this report is different from previous reports, I don't think it's that big of an issue. The thing that we kept hearing from some examiners or other agencies and other folks was this is just too dangerous. This cop's going to get this report. Even if you give him a phone call, he's not going to understand it. He's going to go and lock that guy up. And not only did we never experience that, neither did San Diego, neither, neither did the Israelis here. They did additional tests. They did some DNA testing. But when I talk to cops about these sorts of issues where we have potential match that's inconclusive but maybe not to the level of identification especially back in the day when it was value no you know no value and it was either value for id or no value when i talk to cops all the time and they go are you crazy my job as an investigator is to investigate i don't just go take get your report even if it's a dna hit <laughs> i don't just go and lock the guy up i do my investigation i'm constantly following up leads that don't go anywhere just because the lab has it even even a, he said the, the one cop said even when you send me a report that says an identification like, i don't just go off of that i then continue to do my investigation collect right. evidence and do my job i'm a good investigator I just don't take the report and just blindly go and arrest people. And I went, well, that makes sense. Good investigators, and I'm, <laughs> I'm qualifying this with good investigators, are True. used to following up on plenty of leads that don't go anywhere. 
as and now with DNA mixtures, when you run DNA mixtures through databases, they will easily get 10 to 20 people on a list. They will do their due diligence and go through that list and look at alibis. Were they in jail at the time of the crime and so forth? So I, I, I think us assuming that cops are too dumb and too irresponsible to handle this kind of information is inappropriate for us to, to make those sorts of decisions. I don't think that we should be doing that for the cops. I think we should be reporting this kind of information responsibly, carefully, but reporting it nonetheless. You know, if this goes back also to a few episodes we did three, four years ago, maybe two, three years ago, uh, where we had a panel at the Tri-Division Conference in uh, in the Phoenix area where we had on a crime scene investigator, a lawyer, a cop, you know, we had all these different people. And that was that was the, the detective, that's what he said. He was, it was basically like, yeah, I'll get your report, but I'm not knocking down doors and, you know, busting in the middle of the night. I'm going to go ask him, hey, you ever been in this car before? No? All right, we got to then come with me. We got to talk because, you know, I think you've been in this car. Or have you been in this car before? Yeah, yeah, this is my, you know, this is my cousin's car. Of course I've been in this car before. Uh, okay, well, then there you go. That <laughs> kind of explains things. Yeah, and, and in that in San Diego, when they followed up on their cases, it was pretty interesting because um, one of the cases, they got, they got it reported out right away. They went to the place and the stolen goods were still there in the apartment. Okay. Right, there you go. Perfect lead, just like in this Israeli case, it's a great lead. One of the cases they followed up on, and the cop never did anything with the report, never went anywhere, and it just died. And then one of the other ones, they're not sure what happened. They started the investigation, but it must have petered out. The, the, the notes weren't real clear. Nobody really knows what happened, but they did follow up on it. It just never went anywhere. So, and then that's exactly what I'd expect with, with some of these cases. If it's not clear cut and the cop doesn't get anything good out of their investigation, it's not going anywhere. So the the the, uh, the conclusion of the article here is that using APHIS, even in uh, cases where the uh, the latent only has limited comparative limited uh, comparative value, you do have to be careful. You have to kind of think ahead how you're going to handle the situation, but it could still be of value. Now, in the, the paper here, they say it must not be considered as evidence by itself, but only as an investigative tool that may assist the detective. And I'd maybe tweak that language a little bit to say, because I do think it is evidence and can be considered as evidence by itself. It, it's just, you know. It's, no one should be convicted solely on that. Right. It's just, it, it's, it's like back in the old blood typing days of ABO. Okay, yeah, the profile matched up, and the, you know the the uh, the evidence is type A blood. The suspect has type A blood. All right, let's go talk to him further. That is still evidence. Yes, it's not going to be used by itself to convict somebody. I think it can still be considered as evidence. So I, I, it's just a little bit of semantics here, but this is still valuable information for investigative purposes, but also for court purposes, as long as. The jury, everyone involved in the case, understands the limitations of the evidence as well. Yeah, and that it was used to help point towards other evidence like DNA and so forth. Without having run it in APHIS, they would not necessarily have generated that name. They did have that name in a list of potential people, but it really did put them a little more towards that individual in a list of, of people. And then once they get the DNA... Well, now that combines together very nicely. Right, right. Yeah, it, it, it was a good article. I, I realized that they were proposing something that is still, shockingly to me, is still considered very <laughs> forbidden controversial. and controversial and so forth. But I don't know. I, I think that this is just uh, evolving our discipline and pushing it forward and allowing maximum use of this fantastic evidence, fingerprint evidence, that doesn't always have to be a positive identification. Absolutely. And um, that'll be, I, th I think, uh, an episode here down the road soon will be uh, discussing the the uh, the five-point scale that OSAC has proposed now. 
Uh, as we've talked about, I mean, obviously, ID and conclusive exclusion, everyone knows about that. Even support for same source has been covered in this this episode, obviously, but others we've talked about it before as well. But that support for different source, that's a little bit more fuzzy because no one... I've never, I've not seen anyone completely clear on how to apply that to uh, to fingerprint comparisons. So that might be a, an interesting thing to discuss as well. Yeah. So I, yeah, I, I agree, Eric. And uh, another great paper from the Israelis. They they always put out some some really great papers over the years and thank them for that contribution. And I will have to look up the Israeli print again because. Like I said, it's been like 10 years. So. I'll, uh, yeah, I'll share it with you. It's one of those yeah, yeah. that it was very unfortunate how that how they were treated because they really right. had a great point. And, and even today, I mean, I look at that impression and go, I would not exclude those. There's no way I would exclude those. And I'll, I'll share it right. with you and you'll, you'll see really highly specific discriminating features in a small area. Um, yes, there are some minor level three differences, but in my opinion, not enough to exclude. And so, you know, they were approaching this topic, I thought, very respectfully and then just got shot down by the gurus of the time who just said, you don't know what you're talking about. This isn't even close. And I just look at it and go, oh, my God. It was actually presented to some folks in the first Daubert hearing in the Mitchell case while, while on the stand. Right. And and they did the same thing. They they shot it down and said if this isn't even close and a a competent expert would exclude these two images. I'm I am not a competent expert. <laughs> I I this is also but but keep in mind this is in the day this is in the pre black box days oh, yeah. where we didn't understand at the time how bad we were with exclusions. And uh, that that I think was the real game changer that move people forward from oh no use look at all these third level differences you can exclude to yeah okay hold on a second here let's 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 be a little bit more careful and judicious and not as uh not throwing around that exclusion term so willy-nilly good point um so uh for uh, people out there especially if you're in the southeast or if you're just someone who wants to spend some time in april in hollywood florida encourage you to go to rayforensics.com click on the training tab and then there's a uh, information there on training i'm going to be offering in uh, like i said in april the week of april 8th in uh, uh first half of the week is going to be exclusionology research and uh, exercises it's a new formation of that exclusionology class and uh, very much looking forward to introducing that to examiners out there. The last two days of the week is gyro in Photoshop and uh, it's going to be a brand new class. Really excited of bringing these gyro tools to examiners, making it easier, faster, more efficient for you to do more examination than you've ever done before in less time. And um, can't wait to uh, to do that. So if you have the time, the resources, and the approval from management to uh, to attend, uh, head rightforensics.com for more information, and I'll see you there. Yeah, and I just like to let the listeners know. Maybe next episode we'll be announcing this new testimony class. Uh, if if this is the time of year where you put in for your budget. Uh, and you want something new, uh, it's going to be new and exciting. This will be a testimony class with an actual defense attorney who's very knowledgeable about fingerprint issues. That's going to be likely in September of this year. So give yourself plenty enough plenty enough time to prepare and get squared away for that. And hopefully we'll announce the location and dates uh, in the next episode or so. Other than that, we've got classes through Ron Smith and Associates April 8th through the 12th in Jersey, April 29th through May 3rd in uh, Baton Rouge. And then also I'll be teaching in Switzerland. If you're interested uh, for some European uh, course w- courses, go to Europe. I'm, I'm speaking mainly yeah, to our international uh, listeners probably. That's going to be May 13th through the 24th, two different weeks of, of instruction over there. And, and then, oh, yeah, sorry, one more. Uh, I guess we have also added a new class in the Dulles, Virginia area, and that will be July 22 through the 26th. Busy year coming up, but that's good. Love it. Loving yep. it. Good to be busy. I, I, good to be busy. I do want to mention, I just um, uh, just remembered uh, that that time, if 
for some sad reason, you are not able to go to Switzerland for, for Glenn's class. I am doing another, <laughs> uh, another um, uh, exclusionology class. I haven't ex- picked the exact week yet, but I will let you guys know here as soon as possible once that exact week falls out. But right around the same time in mid-May uh, in Idaho. So, um, Idaho is nice, you know, Idaho's uh, great. It's beautiful. I love, uh, my, my, um, my grandma grew up in Idaho, so I've always, that's where my, my roots, my potato roots are. Uh, so, uh, be glad to head back there. Uh, but you can look at rayforensics.com here in the next just couple of weeks for more information on exactly which date, which week in May that that's going to be. You need to get a sister wife when you're out there. <laughs> Hey, uh, well, hey, uh, Arizona's got their own share of... Uh, oh, that's of, true. That's northern Arizona, <laughs> that though. going on, too. All right. So, uh, people out there, please consider contributing to us. You know, it's it's uh, it's, it's just our little project that we have going on, but we, we want you to join the team as a Patreon. If you can't afford the dollar a month, but, I mean, who, who, who can't afford a dollar a month, you know? But if you can't... Share us, uh, post uh, our links, tell your coworkers. If you're a supervisor, you know, mandate your your uh, your employees to listen to us, and then uh, go to uh, iTunes or whatever you listen on. Give us the five star ratings, review us. We'll even read off uh, those those great reviews that uh, that you write about us. Uh, you can also follow us at Double Loop Pod. Email us, eric at rayforensics.com or glenn at eliteforensicservices.com. That's Glenn with two N's. The opinions and thoughts expressed on the show belong to us and not to anybody that we work for. And with that, catch you guys later. Bye, everybody. Have a good week. <laughs>